Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we're looking at the outcome of Nigeria's historic presidential election. This week, millions of Nigerians went to the polls in an election widely seen as being crucial for the direction of the country, expected by many estimates to be Africa's most populous country by 2050. We're going to be talking about the state of Nigeria's democracy, who won and why, and what lies ahead. We'll also be looking at events closer to home this week. On Monday, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen announced a new deal for Northern Ireland and the UK with many implications, and the arguments are still going on, particularly in Northern Ireland. Three years after the UK formally left the EU, we're going to be discussing whether Rishi Sunak has actually got Brexit done and whether the worst years of UK-EU relations are behind us. That's a bit of optimism for you. Joining me down the line is Lena Connie Hoffman, an associate fellow with our Africa programme. Hi, Lena. Hello, Brian. Thank you. I think you're in Luxembourg at the moment. Good to have you. Calling in from Abuja in Nigeria is Anu Adioy, the West African correspondent for the Financial Times, and he was a former Academy Fellow here at Chatham House. Welcome, Anu. Uh, thank you for having me. Really, really good to be talking to you again. And finally, here in London is Charles Grant, the Director for the Centre for European Reform. A very warm welcome to the show, Charles. Thank you, Bronwyn. Well, let's start with Nigeria's election. We're speaking on the Thursday morning and the results are now known, although may well be contested. The winner is Bola Tinubu of the ruling party, and he spoke at Chatham House in December. Here's a flavour of what he had to say. In spite of legitimate concerns being expressed by observers, Nigerians are resolutely committed to democracy, regardless of their political differences. At the best of times, and with reference to its foreign policy orientation since independence in 1960, and since the end of its civil war in 1970, Nigeria has always crafted its domestic national security and economic (coughs) development uh, policies with some strategic foreign policy imperatives in mind. There is a close connection between domestic development and national security. Arno, you're in Abuja. What can you tell us about him? Bola Tinubu is the former governor of Lagos State, um, Iran, Nigeria's uh, commercial center for eight years, from 1999 to 2007. Since then, he has been, quote-unquote, a political godfather who has used his massive influence to ensure that his successors are essentially unpicked by him. He's also widely credited for bringing together the APC coalition that defeated the ruling People's Democratic Party in 2015 and delivered victory for uh, President uh, Muhammadu Buhari after three failed uh, attempts. So he's seen as this uh, political godfather who uh, and kingmaker who has um, uh, brought a lot of people uh, into politics. And now this is his chance to be Nigeria's president. And I think uh, it's the slogan of his campaign was, uh, it is my turn uh, in in his native Yoruba language. And what does he want to do? Because it's my turn doesn't tell you an awful lot about that as election slogans go. Um, it has a certain clarity to it, but it doesn't, it doesn't take us into what it might mean 
for uh, security, for corruption, for growth, for all these things that people are looking to the president for? Yeah, I mean, if you look at his uh, campaign, he, he had this delicate balance he was trying to strike between uh, telling Nigerians he was offering renewed hope um, while also not criticizing the incumbent president, who is, of course, a m- member of his own party, right? Uh, because I think anyone you'd ask will tell you that the past eight years under the ruling All Progressives Congress has not been good for most Nigerians. I think statistics will show you that Nigerians are poorer and less safe than they were eight years ago. And Bola Chinubu has been trying to strike a balance, uh, I think, uh, uh, between not criticizing the president and also uh, saying that he was going to offer renewed hope. So I, I think the interesting thing about his candidacy is that um, he's going to inherit a lot of problems with security, with uh, the economy, but he's going to inherit those problems from uh, a, a president from his own party, right? So he will not have the luxury of blaming the opposition as they did when they first got power in 2015. Um, so it would be interesting to see how Sorry. he navigates that. That's very elegantly put. And just just staying on the election result for a moment, the opposition candidates are, are, are talking about legal challenges. Do you think that they've got a chance of that? If we look at precedence, uh, no Nigerian presidential election, uh, certainly not since 1999, when the country returned to democracy, has been overturned through the courts. And... For a variety of reasons, Nigerians are also suspicious of the judiciary. Uh, So I think, uh, I mean, obviously we can't say what the future holds, but I'd be very surprised if um, this is overturned through the courts because I think you need a very high bar of of evidence and you would also need a a willing court to, to, to take this to its logical conclusion. And so it would be very, I'd be very surprised if this happened. I think what matters now probably is the court of public opinion, um, what people think of the legitimacy of these elections. And we've seen that uh, international observer groups who are usually quite bland in their, in their observations were quite scathing of Nigeria's uh, International um, Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, for how they conducted these elections. Uh, and I think that's a, a very that's a very instructive uh, thing to watch. So we will watch that. Lena, could you pick up this point? I wonder about how this election result is going to be seen because I mean there was fairly even split between the top three, and Nigeria's youth vote in particular ran, rallied around Peter Obi. How do you see this result sort of um, settling down if it does? Um, well, I think as um, Anu said, it quite uh everything seems up in the air um the elections um even though uh tally was announced by the head of the electoral commission the elections aren't over um this is a quite a contentious period i i don't know if it's really hard to connect this to any um similarly contentious period uh, since Nigeria returned to democracy um, in 1999. As Anu said, um, no, no court in Nigeria has overturned uh, a um, presidential election. So um, there will be a lot of divisions in the country. 
lots of young people and millennials um, supported the OB candidacy, they will be a very difficult um, segment of the population uh, for um, President-elect Tinubu to appeal to and um, build relationships or bridges with the priorities that um, um, these young people seem to have and as well um, the, the expectations around um, the legitimacy of the character who would be president do not align fully um, with Tinubu. So it is quite a rough road um, for the electorate in Nigeria. And what do you think this means, this point that Ani was, was, was touching on about what it might mean for security and for the economy? This, you know, the world is looking at the spectac- spectacle of a country with enormous oil wealth which, where people have got poorer. Um, I think it's still very uncertain. Um, Tinubu is inheriting, as Anu said, the legacy of his own party's um, 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 administration. So under, you know, um, under the leadership of um, the APC, Tinubu's party, um, the laundry list of Nigeria's challenges have become increasingly worse. We've seen insurgency um, splintering and um, spreading across the north of the country. The capacity of security institutions have not been strengthened or built up or scaled in any a significant way to address these security insecurity uh, uh, um, issues across the country. Um, state institutions as well that are intended to provide um, services have been hollowed out and uh, increasingly inc- incapacitated. So um, the shadow of uh, a flawed election um, does not allow, in my estimation, for an incoming administration the kind of political capital and public consensus that you need to redirect such a fragile country. So, uh, yeah, the problems that the party and the government will face will persist um, in the months and and the months ahead. Well, thank you for that, Lena. I'm going to come back to you, Nanu, uh, uh, on just some of those points. But Charles, um, I wonder from the, the, the perspective of the UK's foreign policy how this looks, because Nigeria was seen as, uh, for a long time as a security guarantor for West Africa, but it doesn't look quite so um, stable uh, at the moment. I spent the first three years of my life living in Nigeria, so I'm very interested in what Anu and Lena have been saying to each other. Despite the imperial legacy, Britain had a very close relationship with Nigeria, really. The French government post-empire has tried to build close relationships with the French, many of the countries in French West Africa, and that's now gone a bit pear-shaped in the last few years. The British have never tried to have a very close relationship with the French have. And I think Anu and Lena would know better than me, they haven't had a very close relationship with Nigeria. And they're very worried, I'm sure, about the threat of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism sallying forth out of parts of Nigeria into other parts of the Sahel. But I don't think the British are very, very closely involved in trying to do much about it, as far as I'm aware, but maybe I'm being unfair to the British government. Uh, no, I think you've, you've captured it uh, just about right. Arno and Lena, I want to come back to you on just, as we've been discussing, quite an unsettled picture, what you're going to look for in the coming weeks and months 
as a guide to, to how Tinubu's uh, presidency might go and how the situation is going to be taken in, in public opinion. Anu, why don't you start? The transition period has now started. Um, the Tinubu, uh, president-elect Tinubu was quite, I think, magnanimous in victory, at least in his victory speech yesterday, calling on his opponents to come together to work for the good of the country. I mean, if you're cynical, you just say that's just what you expect a politician to say and we can watch what it will actually do in the coming weeks and months. But I think um, he has a lot of tough decisions to make. Um, obviously, we've been talking about the economy and insecurity, but also there's a decision to be made about um, costly fuel subsidies. Um, Nigeria spends about $10 billion a year uh, on fuel subsidies. He has to make a decision uh, about removing it or not. Previous presidents have shied away from that particular reform. He promised during the campaign season that he will remove it. We will see if it sticks to that promise. Um, so yeah, the the I mean, I, I've spoken to people who say, I don't even know why anyone is running to be president of this country because of all the challenges that, that face anyone who actually wants to, to work as president of Nigeria. So I think it's just a thing of we have to watch and see. Um, I've spoken to advisors of Tinubu who understand that they are taking over a very divided country and they need to do everything to make sure that the country pulls in the same direction. But I think we also have to wait and see how the legal challenges affect um, uh, the proposed unity of the country. Thank you for that. I think the late Queen Elizabeth of England said something like that uh, to Prime Ministers, possibly Boris Johnson, on taking over. But they, uh, the problems are different. And Lena, what do you think? What are you looking for now? I think what I'll be looking for now is how state institutions recover um, some level of trust for all of these challenges to be addressed. I think what we tend to underestimate when we speak about Nigeria's socioeconomic, political um, challenges is how um, the quality of institutions have been incapacitated for so very long and everyday Nigerians um, feel less and less the presence of government in their lives. So that, that social contract piece for you to govern such a diverse and um, fragmented country um, is still very missed. So the administration that came before Tinubu um, came in with a bit more popularity. Um, there was definitely um, an eagerness to put aside um, the administration that was before them, the PDP administration, um, but still struggled to build um, kind of widespread universal consensus and a social contract to, to change the direction of the country. So the elements of uh, accountability and building trust in institutions um, are very key to addressing um, these challenges in the context of Nigeria and don't get sufficient attention. Thank you. Very elegantly and soberly put. Well, let's turn, uh, pivot to Britain and the deal 
this week that Rishi Sunak seems to have done with the European Union, but I'm going to bring in at the end of that also the point that Charles touched on about the UK's, uh, what, what it might do in West Africa. Um, Charles, let me turn to you. It's been six years since the UK triggered Article 50, th- three years since we left the EU. Has Rishi Sunak finally done it? I think he has. Um, we now have this basic structure of the future relationship between the UK and the EU in place. The structure is the withdrawal agreement, including the famous Northern Ireland Protocol, which there's been an, a new agreement on how to interpret it called the Windsor Framework. We have the trade and cooperation agreement, which is a kind of tr- free trade agreement between the UK and the EU. So the basic, the basic building blocks are in place. That doesn't mean there won't be more negotiations. The British are going to be negotiating with the EU until doomsday. There'll be for example, the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, has to be reviewed in 2026. There'll be non-stop negotiations, but the basic framework is in place and is unlikely to change for many years to come, as far as I can see. And he can get this through Parliament, can't he? Labour said that it would sign on to this. Uh, he has a, a big block of Tory MPs. There are some who don't like it. The DUP, we'll come on to in a second, don't like it. But he can get this through Parliament, can't he? If, 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 if Parliament gets a vote, which it may not immediately. I, th- I think Parliament will get a vote, and I think he, he won't need the votes of, of the Labour Party to get it through, which is Sunak. I think it'll get through on a Tory majority, because the, many of the, the leading Eurosceptics in the Tory party, like Andrea Leadsom, Jacob Rees-Mogg, David Davis, Steve Baker, are actually saying the deal's not too bad. And I think it's much, Sunak got a much better deal than many people, myself included, thought he could get, because in the end, the Commission proved surprisingly flexible and gave the British an awful lot of what they wanted, uh, partly because uh, Rishi Sunak was turned out to be a man they could trust and do business with in a way that they felt they couldn't trust his predecessors, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. So, of course, they trusted Sunak. They made, they went the extra mile to give him some of the flexibility that he wanted in how to interpret the protocol. So we're now hearing an awful lot about whether the DUP, uh, the Northern Ireland Unionist Party, uh, is going to sign on or not. Does that matter or does it matter just for whether... Uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly reforms as as a sitting government there. But uh, how, how much does Rishi Sunak really have to take notice of that? Well, that's a very interesting question. A British minister who's a very famous Eurosceptic said to me in December, if the DUP don't come on board, that's their problem, we'll do the deal anyway. And that's exactly what turned out to be a Sunak strategy, to do the deal anyway and just wait for the DUP to come on board if they do want to come on board. If they don't come on board and they remain hostile to it, they will not rejoin the Northern Ireland executive. So Northern Ireland doesn't have a proper government, which is, which is obviously bad news for everybody, really. But I think, you know, the DUP have a history of saying no and then softening their position later. They actually rejected the, the, the famous Good Friday Agreement that Tony Blair did in 1997, which set up the, the, the structures we're living with today for Northern Ireland, uh, shared governance with the South. Uh, the DUP rejected it very firmly, but a few years later, they came around to accept it. And I think Sunak is probably gambling that the DUP if then they haven't come out strongly against the, the Windsor framework yet, they haven't supported it either. If they do oppose it to some degree, they'll, they'll, they'll work out in the long run. They've got no choice but to come around to accept it because they can't stop the Windsor framework. If it goes through the British Parliament, it becomes the law of the land. And they don't have any other options but to learn to live with it as far as I can see. So I don't think Sunak is too worried about the DUP. That they've, been, they've been abandoned by many of their friends in the the ERG, let's go on acronyms, right? The European Research Group, which is the most right-wing conservative Eurosceptic MPs and half, at least half the ERG are not backing the deal. So I think the DUP have been left stranded. So their choice really is whether to 
join the assembly again. And uh, at the moment, they can block uh, the, the assembly sitting under the power sharing agreements. But you're beginning to hear, including in American circles as well, as people focus on the 25th um, anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement next next month, about whether whether it might be time to look at. Um, that power sharing agreement again moved to something voluntary if the DUP overplays its hand in this and and, and says no. Um, really interesting. I'm sure we'll come back to this. Um, but thanks for that bit of uh, optimism that you've managed to bring in. Arno, I wanted to just to, 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 to pivot again right at the end of this and pick up the point that Charles mentioned in the beginning about Britain in West Africa um, and whether you see... Uh, it um, sure-footed in, in a role at all or absent, what you see? Yeah, I mean, obviously the big power in West Africa is France or used to be France, uh, depending on uh, where you're looking because obviously the Russians are now making friends in, in places like Mali and Burkina Faso. Um, and it's interesting that Macron is actually um, going to a few African countries this week to try and quote unquote uh, reset the relationship. Um, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of work that the UK can do. Obviously, there's there's big security challenges in the Sahel, um, and I think Western countries are still trying to decide how to partner with um, countries uh, in the Sahel um, to tackle the the, the security crisis uh, in particular. I mean, I think one problem that obviously uh, is a big concern is the, the departure of uh, French troops from Burkina Faso and Mali means that uh, there's a big um, gap to be filled. The Russians are filling that gap. And I think it's, it's a question of how best do Western countries partners um, with the countries in the Sahel, because I think um, you, there are people in, in coastal West African countries like Ghana, and Togo and Senegal and Ivory Coast, who are already worried about the potential inf- uh, uh, impact of, of the crisis coming towards their own country. So I think if, 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 if you're like a country like uh, Spain, for example, or Italy, you have to start worrying about the potential of that to also perhaps spread towards your shores. So yeah, um, there's, there's a lot of difficult decisions and difficult conversations to be had about how best to support countries in that region um, in, in like uh, to deal with the security challenges that they face. Yeah. And you put it very well. And when France uh, took its forces out of Mali saying, look, we just can't uh, manage this in- anymore, and Russia immediately and the, the Wagner group began, began to move in, I did not hear any inclination uh, in British foreign policy to try to fill that gap. You hear a lot, I don't know whether Britain can live up to it, but about an Indo-Pacific tilt. Um, but not about uh, trying to, um, to play a big role in West Africa. Lena, I wondered what your thoughts were on this. Um, I think if we look at bilateral relations between the UK and, and West Africa, um, they've typically comprised, um, there's always been a lot of mixed signals. And the last couple of years, um, not enough or sufficient attention um, being uh, placed on uh, movements within the region that are resisting um, that are resisting um, authoritarian governments and the abuse the abuses of uh, human rights in the region 
So mixed signals around um, um, greater demands for democracy and human rights that you would that you see these movements emerging across uh, um, the Sahel region and uh, and in in you know coastal West Africa as uh, Anu was mentioning. So I think um, the trade offs that the UK have made um, with West Africa. And as well, it's reducing its um, foreign aid, for example, um, to countries that it used to support have been, will be, are costly in the short term and also costly in the long term. Um, the level of ignorance towards how political contexts are changing in the region, um, the lukewarm attitude towards um, the justice deficits and demands for accountability um, among populations or within populations affected by conflict and insecurity in the region are costly for not just the UK, but lots of external actors that are operating within the region. So I think it's in that context we should think about Russia's role in West Africa and the way West African populations perceive Russia's world in West Africa. And the UK should definitely um, be less um, hasty to joining in, um, just raising temperatures and anxieties over Russia uh, playing a role in the continent and understanding, you know, how the local context is changing. It's a really interesting perspective and an alternative view about how the UK might approach Russia. Charles, your final thoughts on this? Well, the final thought to link together the two halves of our conversation. I mean, the, the deal that Rishi Sunak has struck with the EU, which included really building a much closer relationship with Emmanuel Macron, does create potential for Britain and France to work together on foreign policy issues and security challenges. The British did already provide helicopters to the French when they were in Mali. That, that's now come to an end. But I think there hasn't been much cooperation in West Africa between the French and the British. But neither of the British are touch wood going to enjoy a much closer relationship with their EU partners, and in particular the French, with uh, King Charles due to visit France soon and the first Franco-German summit, Franco-British summit for five years coming up in the next few weeks. I think there's a real opportunity for Britain and France to work together in confronting common security and other challenges in West Africa, especially in Nigeria. Well, thanks very much indeed for that. And we're going to be coming back to all these things. That is going to be the end of it, I'm afraid. But a big thank you to my guests, Anu, Charles and Lena. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask that. We always look. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we would love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow our recent work of our Africa programme. And the Africa programme hosted many of the presidential candidates in this election and has an awful lot to say about it. Next week, we're going to be hosting India's Rahul Gandhi. He's going to talk about India's place in the world and the state of the country's democracy. Could prove lively. We'll bring it to you by live stream. But that's it all for now. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Have a good weekend. Mm-hmm.